I'm Gina Asher. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Nancy Fulbray, Professor Emerita of Economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and Director of the Political Economy Research Institute's Program on Gender and Care Work. Her research focuses on the intersection of feminist theory and political economy with a particular focus on the work of caring for others. Her books include Greed, Lust, and Gender, A History of Economic Ideas, and Valuing Children, Rethinking the Economics of the Family. She also contributed to and edited the book For Love and Money, Care Provision in the U.S. Nancy Fulbury, thank you for being here today. It's a great pleasure. A lot of our listening audience probably has experience with care provision, whether as parents or as members of the so-called sandwich generation caring for their own families and aging parents at the same time, or as recipients of care themselves in a healthcare setting. As an economist and social scientist, what draws you to studying care provision? Well, I find it interesting as an economist that it's so important to our sense of well-being as individuals and families and communities, and yet we don't really measure it or assign a value to it uh, when we look at economic growth and development. And how are you taking that on as your focus? Well, I kind of try to engage with it in a number of ways, but I do a substantial amount of empirical work looking at time use data that tells us exactly how much time people spend on these activities and which enables us to to ask uh, what we would have to pay for a substitute for that time if people were unable to provide it. And you're looking at people who are doing this on an unpaid basis? Well, I started out focusing only on unpaid work, but I recognized gradually that there are a lot of uh, forms of work, care work, that people do for pay that have similar characteristics. So a lot of people who go into occupations like child care or elder care, teaching or nursing, are kind of motivated by similar concerns. And in some ways, the, the process of providing care is similar. So just because people are getting paid for it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't really resemble family care in a lot of respects. And I, I think that's actually a really key connection. Unpaid care work isn't usually a sign of a market value, and paid care work is often undervalued. The people that do it are generally paid less than uh, people doing other kinds of work that are otherwise comparable. And many of those are women. Yes, women do uh, the bulk of both paid and unpaid care work, and I, I think it's really linked in some uh, complicated and kind of paradoxical ways to gender inequality. In the 2012 book, For Love and Money, you and your other fellow contributors address some of these issues. Tell us about the research in that book and what you found. Well, we tried to do something that is uh, a little unconventional, which is to look at both care for children and care for uh, individuals with disabilities and care for the elderly, altogether, and to look at paid and unpaid care altogether. So to see something that we call the care sector of the economy, 
uh, which we think has kind of a distinctive logic and really needs to be kind of considered as a whole. So that consideration has implications for thinking about how you measure standards of living and economic growth, but it also has implications for thinking about public policy and the value of public policies like paid family leave, early childhood education, uh, even college, the cost of college, I think, and the level of public support for higher education kind of fits under the care economy rubric. So how does this work affect the economy? Is it is it even part of it? You alluded a moment ago to even how to measure it or quantify it. Care work is a little bit like environmental assets or environmental services. So, you know, we're really dependent on a stable climate, on clean air, on the bees out there pollinating the crops. And we don't have a, uh, you know, we don't put a price on their services, but we know that if they're withdrawn or if they're disrupted in some ways, it's going to cost us money to provide a replacement for them. So I think there's this really interesting parallel between environmental or ecological economics and and economics of care, uh, things that are difficult to measure, but uh, are nonetheless uh, really valuable. And they're both things that you only recognize their value once they start becoming threatened in some way. So how do other economists quantify care providers? In other words, how how do they assign, or you in your work as well, assign um, maybe care providers' place in the economy? As you said, the, the quantification is hard to do. You don't notice them till they're gone. But then when they are missing or, or when care providers, the ones who are unpaid, go to paid jobs and leave that service, how, do you, how does the economy absorb that or reflect that? Well, what happens as a result of the failure to account for non-market work, especially non-market care work, is that we overstate our level of economic growth. What happens when married women and mothers interpaid employment is they reallocate some of their time away from housework and family care uh, to wage employment. And the wage employment shows up in the national income accounts as an increase in the goods and services produced. But the reduction in their time uh, available for family care is not subtracted out. So uh, in periods of of U.S. history, like between 1970 and uh, the mid-1990s, when a lot of women were entering paid employment, there was a steady increase over that period. It gave a boost to economic growth. Since 2000, women's increase in uh, the paid employment has leveled out, and not surprisingly, the rate of growth has too. But I think that reveals that the rate of growth is kind of an artifact of the of the peculiarities of measurement. And in terms of dollars, so right now, since 2000, the people who have gone to the market are there, and we aren't losing any more of the unpaid workers. There's no way to gauge that. Unless they're showing up in the workforce. Well, I I think that, yeah, what I would say is since, since 2000, we've seen actually the labor force participation of both men and women has actually declined a little bit. And a lot of that's the, as a result of a slowdown in the, in the market economy. And that does mean that there's a little bit more time available. I mean, there's no, there's no further reduction in the amount of time that's devoted to family work. But we've also seen the growth of tremendous 
I think, cultural and political concern with the time bind and the difficulty of being a dual earner family with responsibilities for caring for family members and just a high level of stress and also expense of purchasing substitutes for services that are were once produced. So I think that set a lot of things into motion. I mean, it set, it's sort of increased bargaining between men and women over who's going to do the housework, who's going to do the childcare. And I think we see a lot of change on that front. And it's also created a lot of pressure for more public policies uh, to alleviate that, that include things like paid family leave is very much on the political agenda now. Some states uh, have implemented it. And I think it's kind of on the horizon on the federal level. Expanded early childhood education. There are a lot of states, Oklahoma, Georgia, and others that you know you, you might not expect to be in the forefront of that have really made a commitment to getting three-year-olds and four-year-olds into uh, preschool. And so I think a lot is happening in the, in the policy arena. Also with elder care, there's been a movement to reallocate Medicaid dollars for home care rather than nursing home care, and a lot of concern about improving the pay and working conditions of home care workers so that there'll be an adequate supply of people to help, help with aging in place. So obviously when we talk about this topic, we're talking about women primarily who provide the care for decades, generations, socially, as a social construct. They have provided the care. Take us back a little bit. You often talk about the um, patriarchal systems and how much of where we are today has been set up by patriarchies. Give us a little background um, to be able to understand today's policies. Maybe we can frame it in a way that we can understand how we got here. Yeah, I think that's a a really good way to look at it. I think that almost all economic systems have a kind of logic. Um, there, whatever aspects they have that we don't like or we find confining or exploitative, we we want to understand why they emerged and what functions they fulfilled. And if you look back at a lot of the institutions of classical patriarchal systems, some of them have to do with control over women's bodies and women's sexuality giving women very few rights within marriage, giving uh, women very little uh, political or cultural voice. But a lot of them also have to do with really enforcing women's specialization in care provision. So when you, you you know, one of the characteristics of patriarchal systems is restrictions on uh, work outside the home, restrictions on access to education or, or development of skills that could be used outside the home. So I think one of the things that patriarchal systems accomplished was they tremendously increased the supply of family care by restricting uh, choices in other areas for women. And I I think that had some consequences. One consequence was a pretty high rate of population growth. And another was probably pretty high levels of of, uh, care for young people and the elderly. So capitalist systems come along and they disrupt some of the more coercive aspects of patriarchy, and that has some contradictory effects. One effect is it gives women more rights and more choice, and that's certainly something that we welcome. But it doesn't really uh, provide a very clear substitute for the care, supply of care that was guaranteed by strict enforcement of a family obligation. So I think we're caught a little bit between two systems 
in a way that offers women some advantages, but it puts women who are caregivers, who have a, you know, uh, difficult responsibilities for children or for elderly family members, it puts them at a disadvantage because they're kind of culturally expected to uh, to provide this, but they don't always get the uh, support that they need to do it well. You also talk a little about um, how present-day women who stay home with their children are have a, a tougher time getting back in the workforce. I mean, all of the sort of stigma that go along with trying to balance these things in the modern day. Yeah, if you unpack the difference in average earnings between men and women, a lot of it is related to the fact that women are more likely to take time out of paid employment. So single women who who uh, who don't have children earn almost exactly the same thing as single men with the same uh, personal characteristics. So that, that care penalty in an employment regime where people uh, experience and continuity on the job are highly rewarded turns out to be very costly for women. Uh, and I think that's increasing awareness of that is driving this kind of cultural and political shift. You've also written about uh, women and caregivers, uh, whether paid or unpaid, sort of unifying in some way. In other words, becoming more vocal about their situations. Yeah, I think that that women have uh, some common interests both as workers and as consumers. So um, women are particularly likely to understand what it means to have a childcare worker who's not paid enough to uh, be able to care for her own children. They they worry about high rates of turnover um, in childcare and elder care and, and nursing. You know, women are sort of the guardians of the quality of paid care that their families get, and so they are more likely to see and I think be concerned about poor working conditions uh, for low-wage workers who are providing those services. And where do men fit into this? Obviously, we have stay-at-home dads who also face stigma sometimes, uh, and they re-enter the workforce. Where where is their position in this? Well, yeah, it's so interesting that the younger generation has developed a set of gender norms that's much more egalitarian. I, I see my students very eager to uh, share responsibilities for sh- for child care and, and very mindful of the pleasures as well as the burdens of, of doing that. And I think that that more men are doing it and more men are engaged in it actually uh, helps uh, create awareness of the importance of uh, some institutional changes that reduce the cost of doing that. And one really good change would be an employment regime where people can work fewer hours per week without experiencing a penalty. And, you know, right now, when a lot of people are working more than 40 hours a week, to cut back puts you at a disadvantage. But if we could make that change together towards uh, a reduced work week, that that penalty would not be nearly so great. And people would probably be more productive in both arenas. I assume we've been talking mostly about the United States when we talk about this. What is it like in other countries? Well, in Northern Europe in particular, there is an array of public policies that are really designed to make it easier for people to combine paid work and and family care. And in France, a reduced work week, a 35-hour work week, uh, is part of that. Paid family leave from work, uh, especially paid family leave that gives incentives for fathers 
as well as mothers, to take some time off. So the packaging of policies in the Nordic countries in particular is designed that there's a certain amount of leave offered to families. And if fathers don't take some of those months, the family loses them altogether. So there's a very uh, strong incentive for fathers to take some time off. Families with children under the age of seven can get reduced work schedules, more flexibility for part-time employment. The United Kingdom has moved towards policies that allow more flexibility for parents to negotiate with employers about uh, reduced work time. Germany, for a long time, was a country that uh, was not very supportive of uh, paid employment for women. And uh, in the last 10 years, they've made implemented a lot of changes uh, to try to change that. Partly, they're concerned that German families are just not able to raise very many children because of the pressures of lack of child care combined with, you know, poor workplace flexibility. So the expansion of child care in Germany and the expansion of of paid family leaves has really been pretty significant in, in recent years. Is it always this tension in social and government? In other words, do do policies come about because of social pressures, or are policies <laughs> driving social mores? Well, it's a circular process, I think, and it's not something that social scientists perfectly understand, much as they would like to. I mean, I think comparative social policy is driving some of the innovations in this area, that looking around and seeing what other countries do and what's working uh, is a, a pretty powerful impetus to change. and I, So I think that greater awareness of European family policies is, is uh, having an influence on the debate or d- and discussion in the U.S. And certainly in the run-up to election year in, in the U.S., we're seeing much more uh, discussion of these issues than we have in the past. Uh, it's really, uh, I think, promises to be kind of a new stage in, the, in that debate. You've been a contributor to the New York Times blog called Economics, where you've unpacked a lot of big topics in a short format, sort of an essay. Tell us about how you chose those topics to look at. Well, first I want to say I had a really great time writing a weekly blog for the Times. I did it for five years. It was a great exercise in following my nose. I really had permission to write on pretty much anything I wanted to, but I kind of focused on these family policy, care work, gender inequality issues. And often a a news story or some political controversy would send me off in search of some academic research that might have been, you know, that, that could be relevant to the discussion. So I kind of saw my task as trying to translate uh, what we're learning from, from research in the social sciences on these issues and to things that I thought uh, ordinary readers would find interesting. So it sort of gave me license to, to, to roam the web and write about whatever sees me at the time. Well, and most of those topics did relate somehow to, not, if not the care provision area, then something closely related. The ones I read were, I think, about raising minimum wage, uh, child care subsidies. So they all sort of fit within your expertise. Yeah, and they I found them they really uh, helpful for my academic research, you know, often giving me ideas or kind of helping me find connections, helping me sketch out 
uh, arguments that I've later been able to develop in a more sustained way. So I think it's a, uh, I think it's actually a pretty good genre. The the uh, I'm kind of a fan of the blog. We're talking with Nancy Fulbury, professor emerita at the University of Massachusetts and a feminist economist who's studied and written about the economics of care provision. As we go to break, we'll hear Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen. Tell us why you chose this song. I love the boss. Uh, I love his music. It's sort of the music of my, you know, music of my college years. <laughs> and I think the song Everybody Has a Hungry Heart is such a great comment on what people really care about most and what they need most. And I mean, okay, it's a song about romance, but it's also about something bigger than that. And I just like the way, I like the way he sings it. We're back with Nancy Fulbright, professor emerita at the University of Massachusetts and a feminist economist who's studied and written about the economics of care provision. So what exactly is feminist economics? Well, I would say it's it's about trying to understand why uh, women have some collective interests as women and men have some collective interests as, as men. And this is not uh, really, in my view, a very... Uh, a difficult claim to defend. I mean, we all have certain collective identities that inform the way that we act in the world. Uh, if we're U.S. citizens, we have some common interest as U.S. citizens. Uh, if if we're students at a particular university, we have some common interest as students in that university. Our racial ethnic identities give us some commonalities that give us some interests based on our race or ethnicity. If we're very rich or we're very poor, we have some common interests based on our location and the distribution of of income. So it, it's not really surprising that we ha- have some common interests that are based on our gender. And often we get together and act collectively to uh, implement changes or establish institutions that reflect those collective interests. So I think uh, if you look back in historical time, patriarchal institutions were largely developed by men and worked to men's advantage in some significant ways. And women's collective efforts to challenge those institutions and gain the right to political voice and, and economic opportunity are a manifestation of their collective identity and interests as women. But it's not obviously just gender that informs our collective identity and action. We have a lot of intersecting and interacting collective identities and interests. And which one becomes salient at a particular time is kind of a function of historical 
circumstance. And I think the direction that feminist theory has moved in the last 10 years is really toward a greater understanding of these intersectional identities and the fact that women are not all the same. We, we are very different. Uh, we have uh, very different interests. But how do we understand the ways that a particular form of identity can coalesce and inform a, a particular collective effort? I think you know that's the project, but also trying to understand how the, that this process has shaped our understanding of economics and the and the world in general. You've noted that care is a unique form of work because it's intrinsically motivated. That is, it's not just about money. Tell us more about what that means. Well, economists like to think about um, work uh, as a process that is uh, can be kind of stripped down to an individual decision to get more money by doing something unpleasant, namely providing labor. And parts of the labor market do work that way, and a lot of us are working just just because we need the money. But care work has this additional layer of intrinsic motivation. And actually, in the market economy, it's not just care work. I think there's some occupations, including our own, we're deriving a lot of uh, satisfaction from what we do. But... Intrinsic motivation is particularly important for the quality of services that are provided when you're not providing them for a consumer who can easily walk away if they don't like the services that they're getting. (laughs) So a lot of care provision involves taking care of people who can't take care of themselves, uh, children, the elderly, people with suffering from illness or disability. And you can't really, you know, it doesn't really work like a market. You know, it's not usually the three-year-old who's paying the care provider and it's hard to monitor the quality of that work. I mean, yes, you could put you could have a, a video camera in the teddy bear to secretly watch the what the nanny or the daycare worker is doing, but if you're going to sit there and watch the video cam, you might as well be there doing the work, okay? So intrinsic motivation actually plays a really important role in kind of guaranteeing quality of care. So when you hire somebody to provide care, obviously you want to hire somebody who who you think is committed to it, because you know they'll provide better quality as a result of that. And I do think that's kind of an intrinsic feature of care work, also because that sense of emotional connection or attachment is part of what makes people feel better. I mean, what it's part of the process. It's not just tending to people's physical needs. It's also being sensitive to and responsive to their emotional needs is a, a really crucial part of that of that care delivery, right? So from an economist's perspective, that intrinsic motivation is really efficient. And if you didn't have it, you'd be really worried about how to ensure the the quality uh, was provided, okay? So that's the plus side of that intrinsic motivation. But there's there's a negative side for the worker, which is that that very process of attachment and commitment reduces the worker's bargaining power. So in a like a, a traditional kind of stylized labor market, you don't like your wage, you quit. You go find another job. And the possibility of exit is w- what guarantees that you have some bargaining power over, over your wage. You can go to the next best alternative. Well, that possibility of exit is kind of limited in care work by virtue of the intrinsic motivation itself. So you don't 
in general, walk out on your responsibilities to dependent family members. And if you're caring for people on the job, you're also somewhat attached. You don't leave in the middle of the day or you don't walk out and you're more reluctant to go on strike. You're, you're, you know, you could think of it as kind of a, being a prisoner of love. I mean, it feels good. You get satisfaction from it. But it's costly. It's very costly. And, you know, maybe that's not a problem in the short run. You could argue that, okay, it's costly, but caregivers are making this decision to accept the burden of care even though they know they might become vulnerable as a result. So it must be worth it to them, right? And yeah, there's. I think there's some truth to that in the short run. But in the long run, I think people look at the penalty imposed on commitments and they might be less likely to make those commitments or to encourage others to make those commitments as if they see them as becoming increasingly costly. So the kind of cultural norms of care and obligation that we rely on could be eroding over time as people begin to feel like they're perceived as suckers or that they're taking advantage of or that they are being, you know, that their willingness to provide care is being taken for granted. And I, I think we, that does take place. I think that you see that partly in discussion of changes in women's roles. You know, in general, it's much more economically advantageous for women to take on some of men's traditional tasks than for men to take on women's tasks because the women's tasks are much less remunerative. So there's that asymmetry there, and I think we need to think about it and deal with it. What does it say about us when the intrinsically motivated people who are caring for us as a society are also largely women and largely in professions where they're, they have very low pay? Yeah. We're not really valuing this. That's and, right. And as you said, we don't really quantify it in a way. I mean, we do the paid jobs, but the unpaid ones we don't really quantify anyway. So what is this saying about us? Well, I think that um, we've kind of misunderstood the meaning of a market economy and that in our sort of preoccupation with the market and the way markets work, we've gone too far. Uh, You know, we've assumed that we could describe the whole world as though it's just individuals making choices uh, that work to their own advantage in markets. And, you know, I think markets have a really great role to play, but markets don't work for everything, and markets in particular don't work for unpriced uh, assets and unpriced services and intrinsically motivated services. And uh, we really need to, you know, we really need to change our understanding of how economies work to recognize the importance of non-market goods and services. And how will we do that? Well, <laughs> talking about it, I think, is is a good start. And I think the social sciences in general are, are trying to come to grips with changing paradigms of economic life and the organization of, of our national and our global economy. So I'd like to think we're making some progress uh, in that area. I think actually ordinary people often have a better intuitive understanding of these issues than people that have been kind of schooled in traditional ways of thought about the market. Among your many accolades, 
are references to your pioneering the area of feminist economics, that your scholarship has really changed how some social scientists think about the meaning of labor and about the linkage between family and the economy. What drew you to this area of study? Well, I think I I grew up and went to college in an area where gender roles were really changing and where a lot of my friends, even some of my family members, were sort of thinking about what what do these gender roles mean and could we change them and should we change them and if we change them, how are we, we going to change them? And it was uh, a great delight when I figured out that I could actually focus my some of my academic research on issues that, that connected to that. So it's fun to be able to to think about what you're living and live through some of the stuff that you're thinking. What about the economist part? That explains the feminist part, I think, to focus on gender roles. Well, you know, economics was traditionally a very masculine realm. And and I think going into economics was, for me, kind of a way of of trying to uh, cross that boundary, transgress that boundary. Of course, I do work I focus primarily on gender and women's work, but I do it within a a very masculine domain. And so it kind of gave me a, you know, it was a little bit of a battlefield instinct, to tell you the truth. And I have to say, I've had a good time duking it out with economists in in a pretty productive way over the years uh, and seeing some some real changes in, in the way people think about these issues. Are there other people coming behind you in that field? Oh yeah, it's it's there's a big wave. I feel like uh I feel like a surfer. There's a big swell. I see a lot of younger scholars in this area. I've seen them here visiting at Indiana University. I see them all over the world. There's a younger generation of of women in academia who are, are really uh redefining the boundaries of of uh of research. And what will they turn up? What What is out there? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll see. That's up to them. Uh, it's their adventure. I'm pretty sure it will, will be a good one. What do you think about for the the care industry, the care providers? Not industry because some of them are not working for pay. But what, what, what is shaping um, the future in that area? Well, I think there are... Um, there are some contradictory trends, uh, so it's a little hard to tell exactly what's going to happen. On, on the one hand, I think there's a greater awareness of of care work and uh, more efforts to improve recognition and reward uh, for care work. On the other hand, uh, we've gone through a period of very high unemployment. Uh, we've seen real wages stagnate for a very long time. And I think we're also moving into a global economy where labor market competition is very intensified, and where information technology is really uh, changing the very nature of work. So it's sort of hard to predict what will happen. I mean, in some ways, care jobs are likely to be a major source of growth and employment because uh, they're harder to automate. They're harder to outsource. It's and, hard to have an intrinsically motivated machine. Yes, exactly. And you, I mean, you can, and, and I think will have automation of some aspects, you know, like monitoring health, uh, you know, monitoring uh, uh, physiological health or, you know, or video cameras or a better communication for people who are restricted to their home. But there's always going to have to be, along with that, some human contact and interaction to help mediate and negotiate that technological environment. So I think, you know, care work is going to 
continue to grow. And I also think that we may, in the long run, be moving towards shorter work weeks where where people are, instead of being divided between people who are working 50 hours a week and people who don't have a job, we might see the emergence of more work sharing and, and part-time work that uh, could have some positive implications for family care and friends and neighbors and community care and and you know I'd like to think more time for uh, enjoying the natural environment and engaging in creative activities that develop our capabilities in a you know in a different way. Uh, so I try not to be too you know I try to look to the future and see potential for positive as well as kind of uh, scary uh, changes. But right now it's really not not clear which way it's going to go. Some of your work has looked at families and the unpaid care provider. Tell us a little about how family evolution over time has affected this as well, this area of care providers. Well, I guess it kind of depends on what you mean by by family evolution For example, over time. Over time in, in the economic world. So we had agrarian world where the family acted as a unit to keep every the farm going to provide food so maybe the women were caring for the children or also caring for the land everyone was working as a unit and how that changed as capitalism and the mechanisms men suddenly were going out to right. earn a wage at somebody else's company. Okay, well, let, let's go back in the U.S. Uh, to the early 19th century and look at the kind of legal environment and property rights that kind of shaped and constrained a system of production based on the family farm. Women had very few rights within marriage. Uh, they had no independent control over family property. They were expected to provide services, care services for their uh, family members, but had really no legal claim on on the family's income. So the legal obligations of the male head of household under that legal regime were basically to provide for the subsistence needs of his family. There was no legal requirement that the male head of household share his income with the family. His only legal requirement was to make sure they did not starve. There were no restrictions on physical violence uh, within marriage, including unwanted sexual intercourse. Women who left or tried to separate from an abusive husband had no legal rights. They did, had no rights to custody of their children. They would basically have to relinquish control uh, over their children in, in that event. And it's also true that the male head of household had legal ownership of the earnings of his children until they reached the age of majority at, at 21. So he could basically dictate what his family members did. Now, that legal regime doesn't mean that the male head of household was always a tyrant who abused his family members. In fact, we know there's a lot of altruism and love and solidarity that informed that and strengthened that family unit. But it's also true that it really weakened the bargaining power of women and children. And if they did find themselves in a situation of abuse or or neglect, there was very little that they could they could do about it. So one of the things that capitalist development, one of the changes that capitalist development wrought in that family was that it created economic opportunities for children outside of the family farm. 
And that increased the bargaining power of children. It meant that they could leave home at an earlier age and they didn't have to continue into adulthood hoping to inherit the family farm. They could go off and find their own, you know, explore their own opportunities. And that was really the first change that kind of destabilized that patriarchal uh, family unit. And uh, one of the consequences of kind of losing the ability to control and mobilize the labor of the younger generation was that having a large number of children became less advantageous. So a lot of these restrictions that had really kind of encouraged high fertility weakened. And you begin to see families having fewer children because children are becoming more costly. You know, they're not going to help you out on the family farm. You're going to educate them, and then they're going to go off and find a a job in town. And as women began devoting less of their effort to caring for the next generation and raising large numbers of children, they gained some economic independence and some alternatives and began to bargain for more autonomy and voice, both in the family and in in the polity. So, you know, we look at, uh, often in the 19th century, we focus on the effort that uh, the feminist movement meant in trying to get the right to vote. And yes, that was a big part of it. But trying to get a right to property within marriage and to ownership of assets that they brought into marriage was actually a very big struggle. And when it was won, it represented a major redistribution of wealth, that women could retain ownership of of, of their own property uh, within marriage, gaining right to their own earnings under federal and state law until the late 19th century. If a woman went to work for wages, those wages belonged to her husband. So there's a lot of really interesting renegotiation of legal rights on the family level, as well as on the the political level. And I think that history is is underappreciated. It's too bad because it's a really important story. Well, in contrast to today, then, we have families operating completely differently, both as units and also economically, as, as well, you, and as you, you could said argue, earlier. And, and in fact, you know, you could argue, and I, I sometimes dare to argue, that we've kind of gone to the opposite extreme. So today, we don't have a family that is headed by um, uh, one person with a lot of legal and political authority that holds it together no matter what. On the other hand, uh, we kind of have this very decentralized family where people, you know, if they like it, they stay, and if they don't, they split. Um, and I think the sense that, that we, you know, we've gone from too much obligation and, you know, authoritarian control to sort of maybe not enough is is part of the disquiet or unease that we feel about this this transformation that we're that we're undergoing, and I think that's something we're trying to figure out. We're trying to culturally negotiate. Well, how do we want to define family responsibilities, and how can we make it? How can we ensure that it's more than just an individual choice and whim of the moment, right? But not something that that we feel uh, too imprisoned and constrained by. And you know, it turns out that's it's not easy to figure that out to put that into practice. But I think we're working on it. So now that we can measure some of the time use and how people are spending their time, bring us up to date on what has happened in, say, the last 30 years. Sure. Uh, Well, one big thing is that more women have entered paid employment. And when they enter paid employment, they generally reduce the amount of time they spend in unpaid family work. But they don't reduce it hour for hour. In fact, 
it seems that they reduce it about 50%. So a woman who starts working for pay 40 hours a week does about 20 hours a week less of unpaid work. So if you think about that, what that means is that women are working longer hours overall. That's what you sometimes hear about with the double day, that working for market work gives women autonomy and access to earnings, but it comes at a pretty high price because they end up uh, taking the primary responsibility for, for family care and unpaid work. But that does seem to be changing over time. And uh, women are doing less housework than they were doing 30 years ago. Part of that is technological change in the home. Part of that is outsourcing, buying substitutes for services once provided in the home. Uh, restaurants, fast food, uh, laundry, child care, a lot of er- growth areas in the economy re- you know, represent you know, substitutes. It's also true that men do more housework than they used to do in the past. And uh, that, that seems to be an accelerating trend, which I think is, is really interesting and important. Another feature of the changing care landscape is that people spend more time with children. So some of that decrease in housework, instead of going into leisure time, went into more participatory activities with children, engaging with children, talking, you know, reading aloud with children, driving children to lessons. It turns (laughs) out that driving children around is a major component of total uh, childcare time. But uh, I think... I'm fascinated by that change because I think it indicates that there are substitutes for some household activities that we want to reduce, but there are other household and family activities that we would actually like to increase, and spending more time with our our children uh, and other family members is one of them. We've been talking with Nancy Fulbury, professor emerita at the University of Massachusetts and a feminist economist who studied and written about the economics of the care provision. She's chosen Nice Work If You Can Get It to close out our show. Tell us more about this piece and why you chose it, Nancy. Well, I love, uh, I love uh, Gershwin tunes in general, and there's always a, a kind of an undertone of humor and, and whimsy in them. And on the surface, this song appears to be about housework and family. You know, nice work if you can get it. If you can find a husband, it will pay you to stay home. But... Um, I always feel like under the surface, there's a little there's a little bit of, of distance and irony uh, about it. Uh, it's a little bit a little bit of a double entendre uh, there, especially I think when we listen to it today. So I think it's a it's a beautiful tune and and a, a beautiful song. Thanks for being with us today. This is Gina Asher for Profiles, and thanks for listening. Midnight, neath a starry sky Nice work if you can get it And you can get it if you try Strolling with one girl Sigh and sigh after sigh Nice work if you can get it And you can get it if you try Just imagine someone Waiting at the cottage door Where two hearts become one Who could ask anything more Loving one who loves you And then taking that vow Nice work if you can get it And if you get it Won't you tell me how 
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.